0: Welcome to the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Pamela Reed Sanchez. And Pamela has served as president and CEO of the Seneca Park Zoo Society since 2014. She's a passionate advocate for species survival and brings this focus to the Zoo Society's guest experience, education, and conservation programs. Prior to the Zoo, she worked across various cultural and arts organizations, including the George Eastman House, and she had a well-received TEDx talk, What the Killing of Cecil the Lion and Harambe the Gorilla Should Have Taught Us. It's a great example of some of the provocative ways Pamela is encouraging people to make changes in their everyday lives on behalf of conservation and species survival. So, Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a
1: pleasure. Glad to be here.
0: So, tell us a little bit, I'm interested because you were talking about the, uh, the these elements of sustainability, uh, but you did start at the, at the George Eastman House. So what was it that, that brought you to the zoo, or how, did you always have okay. this kind of sustainability so, focus?
1: So deep background is I'm a child of the 60s. My formative years were right around 1970. I was six years old when the Environmental Protection Agency was created, uh, when the Clean uh, Water Act was founded, Clean, or Clean Air Act, uh, you know, we had a major oil crisis in 1973 where all of a sudden everybody in the nation was concerned about the energy and and started looking at renewable energy. So those are the years, and, and I don't, for some of your listeners, they might remember the the television advertisement, advertisement that encouraged people to stop polluting and, and help clean up by having a Native American with a tear running down his eyes. He was looking out at it, all of these polluted waterways and mm-hmm. And, um, so that's kind of the, the child of the seventies in me, the, the little hippie part that never goes away. Uh, even as we went through then the me generation and and all of that, it just kind of become a part of who you are. And my dad always taught us that our job while we're on this earth is to leave the world a better place than we found it. So I have constantly been on the search for ways that I can do that and how I can make a difference and uh, have a lasting impact for those that come after me. I, uh did my doctoral work at Syracuse and my Undergraduate and master's degree are in public administration, but I was always interested in nonprofit and how does how do people behave differently in nonprofits than they do in the public sector? Um, and what are the differences between people who want to be involved in a cause for a nonprofit versus those who work for private sector? The incentives are very different. Um, I did my doctoral work at Syracuse in organization theory, nonprofit practice, public administration, and believe it or not, renewable energy and environmental policy. So again, that that part of me that was. You know, always really drawn to what can we do to be to leave a smaller footprint and be kinder to the earth. Uh, I went then went to Phoenix and worked at Arizona State for a couple of years as an assistant professor teaching. What I had been, you know, learning these years, including renewable energy and environmental policy, also cultural diversity classes, public administration, organization theory, organization development. And I decided that academia was not the place that I was going to make a lasting impact. And I decided to leave and enter the nonprofit sector and practice what I'd been preaching. And I was very young to be in academia to begin with. So... It was an opportunity for me to get experience and feel like I was making a bigger impact. And I I worked for a number of years for um, at-risk youth agencies in development management, strategic planning, and then moved into arts and cultural and really found a home there for a long time, but always was more interested in the... um, the arts and the exhibitions and the performances that related to social change and social justice, mm. environmental justice, those kinds of things, whether it was Angels in America when I was working in a theater company or um, we did, when I worked at George Eason Museum, we did shows called like Darfur Darfur and things that use art to elevate people's awareness and hopefully create transformative moments so that they view the world differently and begin to make changes in their own life. That's what what drew me to arts and culture and that's what drew me to the zoo. Uh, I had an opportunity, a headhunter called and said, we have this position open and we think you might be good for it. And I said, well, I could, I, I've been a number two for a long time and maybe it's time that I become a more active member of the community as a community leader. The zoo was at the precipice of beginning the master plan process for this major transformation that we're well underway right now. And to return to my roots in the environment and conservation, and take a job where part of my a big part of my job was to help inspire people to behave differently, to make a lasting impact on the world. That was an opportunity that just brought everything I had been doing home to one place, and I knew I could do the job. Um, so that's why. That's a long answer.
0: No, it's perfect. I, I love that. <laughs> it, it it really gives an insight into kind of your own your own purpose because I know I've I've heard you talking a lot about. With, uh, with what you imagine zoos and especially the Seneca Park Zoo Society should be, and 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 what it's moving towards, because I know that I grew up going to the zoo. I lived not too far away, actually, could could walk there behind, you know, walking along the Genesee River, which we often did, and we were we were members growing up. But one of the things probably the, that I most remember about the zoo is a building that, that no longer exists at the zoo now. It it, it is that, uh, that, that main building that recently came down. And can you tell us a little bit about how not only was that kind of a physical change, but it really represents this, this shifting focus for where you want to take the zoo and what the zoo can and should be. You know,
1: I'm so glad you asked that question because that main building has been there, had been there since 1931 and it served its purpose. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but um, it had become a barrier for us. It had become a barrier in that if your perception of the zoo is that the main part of it is a building that looks like it has animals in cages, then you're you're not very interested in coming back. And the number of people who would say, "Oh, I just don't go in that building," and it smells, and you know, it had been it it had been a wonderful building. So when zoos started in the late 19th century, essentially, they were menageries of animals and they were designed to educate and delight people about animals that they would probably never get to see in their lifetime. Um, it's this about the same time that the idea of the grand tour came up. For those that could afford it, they would spend years doing this grand tour of seeing this, the exotic sites of the world, the pyramids and such, and bring back that knowledge and their, their photos to share with other people. And so um, the idea that that you would go to a zoo and see this menagerie, much like going to an art museum where you'd go and you'd stand in front of a one-war and then you'd move and stand in front of a Monet. And then, you know, this encyclopedic collection of art, this encyclopedic collection of animals. And I often say, I grew up thinking that tigers and lions were from the same place in the world because they were next to each other at the zoo. Interesting. It was all about putting as many animals as you could in one place for the public's entertainment and delight. And, that mission is no longer true at the vast majority of zoos and at none of the zoos that are accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is our accrediting body. There are about 2,500 um, organizations in the U.S. that are licensed to exhibit wildlife. Only 230 of us are accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So it's the highest standards of animal welfare. Um, and, and also the highest standards of guest experience and fiscal sustainability and, and all of those things that lead to a good business model of what a zoo can and should be, including what are your outreach programs? How are you educating the public? And what's really your purpose? Um, so zoos evolved from being these menageries to being educational organizations where you would learn at least the basic facts about the animals and maybe a little bit about their habitats and where they were from in the world. And then we said, you know, that's still not enough. Um we really need to be conservationists. And zoos started taking part in these cooperative breeding breeding programs that are called SSPs, Species Survival Plans. And those are some people jokingly refer to them as match.com for, for zoo animals, but it's really all about ensuring that there is enough genetic diversity to ensure a breeding population for the next hundred years in zoos. So that if something does happen in the natural range, zoos can be a part of reintroductions. There are 30 some animals that exist in natural range today because of zoos work. They had been extirpated. They were extinct essentially. And zoos helped bring them back. Things like, um, the Blackfoot. uh, Sorry. Um. The American bison is one, the California condor. There are animals like the Panamanian golden frog that are extinct in natural range but exist in zoos and are doing well in zoos, and we continue to breed them and work with scientists in the field to try to figure out how to reintroduce them. The problem is that they are not resistant to the chytrid, virus, the chytrid fungus, which just wipes them out immediately. And we've figured out now how to get the first generation through uh, genetic modification to be resistant, but then they breed in natural range and they're not resistant anymore. So zoos are very heavily involved in the science of conservation and ensuring um, that species don't go extinct if there's anything that we can do to prevent it. So um, from the zoo's standpoint, we exist to, um, to conserve the animals that we Display that people can come and meet there. They serve a higher purpose. uh, And it's not just about the survival of the animals that are on site, but it's using those animals to raise awareness about the plight of the animals in natural range. So our mission is to inspire our community to connect with, care for, and conserve wildlife and wild places. And our, our mission, therefore, is not about animals. It's about changing human behavior so that we can save animals. And that's where it's really shifted its focus and, and not just at Seneca Park Zoo, but in the best of the American zoos, it's about how do you, how do you introduce a guest who's coming for an animal-based experience with their family, with friends? They, they believe they're there for fun. Um, and how do you get them to learn about what's happening in natural range in a way that inspires them to behave differently. So when you come to the zoo, you come to a zoo brew for example, which is an adult 21 and over event where our slogan is uh, drink beer, save elephants because 50 cents of every ticket goes for elephant conservation. Last year we raised close to $15,000 for elephant oh conservation through um, through brew alone. So if you're a young person, 24 years old, you're coming to zoo brew, you're watching our elephants, you're talking to our naturalists and to our zookeepers about the plight of elephants in Africa, and you learn that 96 a day are poached for their ivory uh, and that the ivory trade is funding terrorism and that if nothing changes, African elephants will be extinct in 10 to 15 years. That's a heavy, heavy message, and you can leave feeling like I'm just one person. What can I do? Well, our job is to say, yes, you're one person, but here are the things that you can do. And it's not just about contributing money to the International Elephant Conservation Fund. Um, But there are other things you can do in your own life. You can talk to your uh, legislators about making sure that the ivory trade ban still exists. You can talk to them about the Endangered Species Act. You can make sure that you never purchase any ivory products, which sounds like a simple thing, but a lot of people don't know that. Um, so you can become making make sure that you are not part of the problem, and then, if you think about the four thousand people that might come to a Zubru, and there's five of them, so let's just say fifteen thousand people because not all of them hit four thousand, learn about this. The collective actions of fifteen thousand people can make a difference for elephant conservation, or snow leopard conservation, or whatever it might be. So it's all about making sure that people understand that collectively, our individual actions are what will make the difference for species survival.
0: Hmm. And, and I've I've heard you you mentioned kind of that that vision and, and the mission that you have, and I've heard you kind of summarize the mission as the the connect, care, conserve, mm-hmm. and and so. How do you go beyond just the words of, of what you're what you're aiming for and really make that be something it sounds like part of it is that education process when people come and, and hopefully helping them leave with some some individual actions that they can take. Uh, but what other ways are you really helping make them make them feel that connect, care, conserve um, uh, ethos that you're trying to create at the zoo?
1: We do it in so many different ways. We, from the moment you walk in the zoo to the moment you leave, as well as a lot of our offsite programs, we want people to know that they're participating in a conservation organization. We want to raise the level of awareness that there are endangered species because many people don't even know that the red pandas that you see at the zoo, that there's only about four thousand. 1, of them left in the world. The snow leopards that you see at the zoo, there are only between four to 6,000 left of those. That's a really finite number of snow leopards. And so that's the first step, that, that educating them and getting them to connect with those amazing animals and how intelligent they are and how curious they are about us and we are about them. Um, But then teaching them things like responsible consumerism, you know, using Seafood Watch to make sure that all of the seafood that you're buying is sustainably sourced, um, making sure that people understand about recycling and composting and how simple that is to do, you know. um, Not using plastic bags, taking your your reusable bag. So you come, start to say you come to the zoo, and if you're a guest, not a member, the first thing that you're going to do is pay your admission and be asked if you'd like to donate a dollar to conservation. This month we're doing polar bear conservation. Um, Next month I think we switch to snow leopards. So each month it's a different animal that we're raising conservation funds for. And by the way, we raised twenty eight thousand dollars through the gate alone last year for animal conservation, which is amazing. But as you go through the zoo, you will find other opportunities to learn about sustainability and individual action. There are signage. There's a series of signs called Why Save a Species that talk about... um, a particular species role in the ecosystem. We talk about how many are left in natural range and what the trends have been for that animal. So, for example, with African penguins, a sign we're getting ready to put up, it talks about how there were a million breeding pair in 1900 and we're down to about 18,000 breeding pair. Um, That's a dramatic drop. And then one of the, uh, the sections on these signs are, what can you do to make a difference? So we know that not everybody reads signs, but some people do. And uh, we're hopeful that that message gets across. And again, it's that hopeful message of you can make a difference. There is hope for these animals. Um, we have zoo naturalists that often do public programs, particularly in the summer. A part of every program that they deliver the last section of is what can you do to make a difference for these animals. So encouraging uh, human, uh, human behavior, uh, you know, sometimes it's really just about educating people what it is they can do and these very simple actions that can make a difference. And then as you leave the zoo, you might go to the zoo shop and pick up uh, something to take home to remember your visit. And we have in both of our shops, we have sustainability sections that people can take home um, products that help them live more sustainably, whether it's a a little pebble that you put in your shower that monitors how much water you're using or uh, composters that you can put under your sink or reusable bags. All kinds of things: bamboo utensils instead of using plastic utensils. Uh, and I will say too, our food shop, our food concessions, only use um, compostable, sustainable, biodegradable products. So if you get a soda from us and it has a lid and a straw, the lid and the straw are made out of um, corn oil, and they are completely compostable, biodegradable. It's really important that we walk the walk. There's no, uh, there are no products at the zoo that you can purchase that, that, um, use non-sustainably sourced palm oil. Palm oil is a huge problem with, uh, habitat degradation for orangutans and lemurs and, and other animals of the rainforests. And so we won't use any product that is not, uh, that uses non-sustainably sourced palm oil. So we do our homework and we do our best to articulate to guests what that means. And then we do a lot out in the, out in the community as well to try to ensure, look, I know, that if you don't believe in zoos or if you don't like zoos, you're not going to come to the zoo and learn what we're doing. So a huge effort on our part for the last four and a half years since I've been there is to get out in the community and inform them about what we're doing and make them a part of the process. We started doing nature hikes uh, last summer, and uh, we partnered with the Nature Conservancy to go out a 1,000 Acre Swamp in Penfield, which is a wonderful area if you haven't been. Highly recommend it. Um, But we went out. They were... There were 2,000 people on Facebook that indicated that they wanted to come. We obviously didn't have room for 2,000 <laughs> people, but a lot of the people that came were not Zoo members. They found out about it somehow and and came out and enjoyed what we were doing and really learned about the biodiversity right here in Rochester uh, in an urban setting Uh We do park cleanups. We do invasive um, species pulls. So every year we go down to the Genesee River and pull invasive water chestnuts. We go to Braddock Bay and do the same thing. We're heavily involved in monarch habitat restoration. Uh, We've been doing that for probably 15 years, but have really stepped it up in the last few years and and moved from doing small pocket gardens. um, We still do those, our butterfly beltway gardens, uh, but we've moved to really doing large areas of, of habitat restoration. Last year, alone we we planted 22 million native pollinator seeds Um, the monarch population is declining rapidly and a big part of it is that they don't have the right food source which is milkweed Um, the caterpillars that's the only food that they eat so if there isn't milkweed there isn't the next generation of caterpillar or monarch so We've been working heavily on that and, and won awards for what we're doing. You know, we did the One Cubic Foot Biodiversity Assessment Initiative in 2015. That's been quite a while now, but people are still talking about it. When We, so we brought in a national geophotographer, David Litschwager, and we also partnered with the Smithsonian. Um, and we did this one cubic foot, which is essentially uh, you put a, a frame out in nature that's one cubic foot. And you watch it, you study it, and you say, what's using that space over the course of a day and a night? And what? how many species are using it? And when we told people we were doing it, they said, you're not going to find anything in the Genesee River. It's polluted. It's, But the truth is it's not polluted anymore. It's not perfect. It's still on the EPA's area of concern watch list. But it is checking off so many things that that will remove it soon from the watch list. And we wanted to find out, you know, there's been a lot of water quality assessments. Um, the, the water has been good enough since 2003 to start re-releasing sturgeon, which we've been uh, involved with at the zoo. Um, Lake sturgeon were extirpated from the Genesee River and for, for decades, they used to be so plentiful, they were called Albany beef. Um, and then they disappeared through overfishing, through pollution, they were gone. And so now the river is healthy enough to sustain lake sturgeon, which are a prehistoric fish. And it's it's wonderful that they're thriving again. So we knew we would find something, but we didn't know exactly what we would find. And we found a river teeming with life with incredible biodiversity and some species that really thrive in oxygenated good water and some species that thrive in sort of polluted water. And we found invasive species and... um, you know, we took it out to the public through uh, an exhibition of the portraits that David Lichwager, the, the Nat Geo photographer, took. We did an exhibition at Roco. Um, we partnered with uh, Balloon Adventures, Aragami Adventure, to do this huge seven-foot balloon installation at the Sibley Building. Just anything that we could do to get the message off-site about what an incredible resource we have here in Rochester, this extraordinary Genesee River that people cross every day and don't even realize they're crossing um, the reason that Rochester is where it is today is the Genesee River.
0: It, it's really interesting, as you're mentioning that I'm I'm remembering something that you've mentioned uh, in in some of the things I've seen before, talking about bringing a more hopeful message to conservation, uh, but but also thinking about how. The way that you frame a question around how how much people support zoos, and I think it was uh, sp- this was specific to millennials, yeah. where you're talking about how if millennials were asked whether or not they support zoos, they're like, uh, oh, not really. And and if you asked, zoos are all about conservation. Do you support zoos? Uh, then it, then it changed their mind. And so really, that shifting that perception, and, and I thought it was an interesting parallel because you're talking about shifting the perception of the cleanliness of the Genesee River, right? right? And and the the reality started to change. Change, but it takes the the perception a lot longer to to start to change in people's minds and similarly how do we start to change the minds of of people okay yes zoos we used to have this menagerie big building and you walk through and you'd see the it was a lot of the a lot of the monkeys were in there I remember um, but how do you now start to change that perception of the zoo and so getting out it sounds like into the community is getting out of the
1: community of is huge having an initiatives uh, that that Foster an awareness of of zoos as conservation organizations is really important. I think the idea of letting people know that they have a personal responsibility for their own environment is important. Raising the environmental literacy of the community, I think, is a responsibility of the zoo. And, um, you know, I personally believe that cultural organizations have a responsibility to help solve a community's biggest problems. We are not just nice to have in a community. We don't just contribute to a better quality of life, though we certainly do that. But our primary problems here in this community of Rochester are high crime, high poverty, a poor central city school district, and in my mind, a disconnection from nature. And the disconnection from nature obviously is the one that I'm closest to, but we work heavily with the city school district in trying to get kids out to the zoo to use it as an outdoor classroom. But it, but if you're disconnected from nature, then you're likely not practicing sustainable habits in your own life, which, by the way, can save you a great deal of money if you do them correctly. Um, but you're also probably not concerned about leaving trash around or not picking it up when you see it, not understanding the importance of the butterfly that's landing in your garden, not understanding the importance of the bee that's on the dandelion flower that your neighbor doesn't like, but that bee is pollinating your other neighbor's vegetables. Um, So then, and then not understanding the importance of clean air and clean water. And those are just fundamental to all of us. And, and I, you know, I'm a huge environmental justice advocate and, uh, We all have to be connected to nature in in order to understand how important ecology is to us. We are part of our ecosystem and we are the most important part of it in terms of what we can control and not control and the impact we have on our own actions. So...
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, I, recognizing the, the interconnections and, and those interdependencies I think is so important. They talk in the Conscious Capitalism book, you know, John Muir says, when you tug at a single thing in nature, you find it attached to the rest of the world, right? Exactly. Like, there was, I remember a few years ago when the, the there's a big thing about, colony collapse disorder of bees and a lot of people are like okay so what and then they say oh well this is what's going to happen and how hey, many crops aren't going to be able to yeah <laughs> how many different crops you're not going to be able to have and so there are all these interrelationships that that i think sometimes the i don't know the the hubris of of humanity we think we can just control everything and and not recognizing that we're, we're part of this this larger ecosystem is really important
1: well i feel like it's there's been this shift back to maybe a little bit of what it was in the 70s of this awareness of, wait a minute, I can make a difference here um, and I need to make a difference if I don't want to see another energy crisis, if I don't want to see another species go extinct I have to get actively involved. If I want to continue to enjoy the incredible park system that we have here in this region, I should be a part of cleaning it up. I should help clean up the river. I can do it. And you know what? It's really fun to do. And it feels like you're doing something that matters because it does matter. So, you know, we started the Urban Ecologist Program last year, which is a workforce development program for urban core youth that... Tries to begin addressing some of these issues. There's also an, an incredible lack of diversity in nature careers, um, which is concerning um, because we are all responsible for our environment and the ecology. and And a lot of you know a lot of the, the kids who are really uh, good students that are in the city schools, they're being directed towards careers in engineering and science. Um, And some of them could be extraordinary conservationists. And some of them could be extraordinary marketers for conservation-related organizations or accountants or whatever it might be. Um, The idea that there there are careers in organizations, in nonprofits that you can make a living at is really important. Um, And while we have a very good volunteer program, our Zootine program, that is quite diverse uh, in who it reaches... Uh, I felt strongly that we needed to have a program that was a paid program for urban core youth that says, Hey, this is a career possibility for you. Um, And not only can you come here and learn urban ecology and, learn to create and deliver programs in urban neighborhoods. We partner with the city of Rochester, so we're involved with the with the rec centers in the city of Rochester. Um, not only can you make a living at this, but we will also connect you to RIT and St. John Fisher and MCC and the college admissions process there, and we will connect you, connect you with a network of mentors or role models that have said, you know what, I'm here for you, and I'm going to help you build your LinkedIn profile, and I'm going to help you negotiate this process or whatever it might be um so that that's that was a big exciting thing that we did in 2018 and the city of rochester has been uh impressed with the program and they have a commitment to connect kids to nature and so they have actually stepped up and said we will pay for the wages of the urban ecologists in 2019 that's
0: phenomenal wow
1: very very proud of that program
0: It's really, it's really innovative. I mean, to to have some of these ideas, and that's one of the other things I wanted to to talk to you about, is conscious capitalism. In some ways, blurs the lines a little bit between the for-profit and the non-profit sphere. You know, sometimes it's it's bringing the businesses a little bit more purpose that that they may have become out of touch with for whatever reason, but also sometimes it's how do we bring more of that entrepreneurial, innovative thinking to nonprofits. And, and I'm interested both your background, you know, you, you started in academia, decided that wasn't for you, but then decided the nonprofit route. Um, what made you decide that first of all, that the nonprofit route was, um, was for you, but then also I, I can see how much entrepreneurial thinking you bring to the zoo. So, so, you know, how do how do you infuse that into everyone, you know, into your culture?
1: That's a big question. Uh, The nonprofit world has always attracted me because I like working with people who work for a cause, who work for something bigger than them, who work for something that matters to them even more than a paycheck matters. Uh, I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan. And that idea that if you hire people who have the same values you you do and you're working towards a common mission, you'll never feel like you work today. And that's really true. We've really created a culture at the Zoo Society that is mission-driven. We have great workplace values uh, that include things like willingness to change, um, which uh, means risk-taking, accountability, um, transparency. But one of the things that I... I'm a huge uh, one of the other sort of people out there that, other than Simon Sinek, that I really look to is is David Nowak. And I don't know if you know David Nowak, but that Taking People with You and the two huge ideas that I take from from Taking People with You um, is one that if you if you really want to know the business, talk to the people on the on the front lines of it. They're the ones who know how the processes can be changed, what's working, what's not working, and they have to feel listened to and that you're going to act on what they tell you. And so I I use that I. I do all of the staff training um, that we do, that every staff – we do big staff trainings every May uh, right before season starts so that even our seasonals know their role in the mission. That if your job at the Zoo Society is handing somebody a Diet Coke at the food stand, you are involved with meeting the mission of the zoo and we go through why um, each person – has has an opportunity to transform people's lives by working at the Zoo Society, and so I do all of those trainings. I also, for all full time, uh, year round uh, employees, I do staff training for them as well, and that's rooted in mission, vision. Um, I show the Simon Sinek start with start with why uh, TEDx talk, which is incredible. But um, I really I tell people over and over again that the people on the front lines have much more opportunity to have a personalized experience with guests and inspire and transform their lives than I do from my office. They greet hundreds of thousands of people a year. I don't get I don't get that opportunity. So it's really important that they feel heard, that they know the messaging, but that also that they know that they have an open door to me and can tell me, hey, you know what about this? And I'll listen and. We've implemented a lot of the ideas from frontline staff. The other big idea from David's book has to do with the entrepreneurial piece, which is if you want to grow your business by 2 or 3%, you can do pretty much the same things you're doing and just tweak them a little bit. But if you want to grow by 20%, you have to blow up your business model. And if you only grow by 10%, 10% is still a whole lot better than 2 or 3%. And for me, it's not so much about growing our earned revenue or our contributed revenue, although those things are, are important. It's about thinking about how can you do business differently? How can you have more people be transformed on their experience there? How can we reach more people with our message? Uh, It's not enough to serve the... Last year, we had about 380,000 people that came. It's not enough to serve those people. How do we serve this entire community to get everybody involved in, in making a difference for species survival? So... Novak is a, a genius, and, and I use that in training as well.
0: I saw you mention his name before, and, and actually I, I met him in college and, and got, to, got a signed copy of the book and everything. Nice. So I, <laughs> that was one of, the first, one of the first books that I read. So we're on a, on a similar wavelength there. But uh, th- that begs the question, I guess, you know, what are some of the ways that you do measure success? Um, what, what are the big things that jump out at you? You know, obviously the, the money piece is important, uh, but, but what other things are, are really on your radar?
1: You know, we do look at growing audience. We look at growing awareness. Our um, our own budget at the Zoo Society has, has grown about 20% in the last five years, and that's on both the revenue and the expense side. Um, we look at the number of people who are really investing in the zoo, not just the growth in membership, and we're now at 14,000 members, which is really great for us, but... <coughs> but we look we look to it at the at the upper levels all people at the philanthropic level are, are is that number growing because that shows that people are not just using us as an entertainment venue and an annual pass kind of thing but are investing in the mission of the place and we do see that we have a growing number of people who are investing in us in that way we look at increased involvement in the nature hikes in the river cleanups and park cleanups we look at you know how many more people are coming to us and asking us to partner with them. Um, how many requests we have for speakers. All of those kinds of things show that there's a growing awareness. Uh, it's not just about attendance, although that's that's really important. We want to get people out, especially right now. That place has transformed tremendously, and it's only in the beginning stages. You know, We have these two new cold Asia habitats in the center with the red pandas and snow leopards that are really naturalistic habitats. You can see the animals moving the way they would in natural range, And then we have animals of the savanna, which is five new acres of, um, you know, giraffes and zebras and our rhino habitat moved down there. But then this great indoor experience that people haven't had uh, at Seneca Park Zoo before. But, you know, that, that naturalistic habitat is really important. People need to feel, the perception that people have when they come is that they need to feel that the animals have enough space. They need to feel that the animals are comfortable and moving in natural ways and behaving in natural ways. And uh, the naturalistic habitats are key to that human perception of it looks as though they have great animal welfare. Because if animals don't look as though they're having good animal welfare then we can't educate about conservation because people, that was the problem with the main building, that even though the animal welfare in that building was wonderful, our zookeepers are phenomenal. Um, There was many enriching experiences. We did everything that we could, but the public perception is the animals are in cages on concrete and you can't move beyond. I mean, research has shown you can't move beyond that perception of poor animal welfare to why does that animal, why is that animal here? You know, Jim Berhaney, for those of you who have seen um, the zoo on Animal Planet, Jim Berhaney is head of the Bronx Zoo and he is regularly known to be say, at the end of the day, why is the monkey in a cage? And the monkey's in a cage to serve a higher purpose and that's to teach and inspire and have people change their own individual behaviors. So that's, that's really key is we're constantly looking for How the evidence that people are changing their behavior and your little things like, you know, as I said, we have this line of sustainability products in our zoo shop, they're selling and people are coming back and buying them as gifts for others. And that's kind of, it sounds simple, but that's a really exciting thing. You know, we, we opened the Center for Biodiversity Exploration last summer. Uh, which is an immersive gaming space that's meant for intergenerational play. We hired a couple of students um, as co-ops from RIT and then have kept them on our staff, they, one is a 3D modeler and the other is a game developer and they have helped create this extraordinary experience that teaches people how their individual actions impact the health of the, of the water in the Genesee River. So if uh, somebody is playing and does something that's not so great for the environment, like maybe they put uh, fertilizer down the storm drain when they are doing their lawn um, and maybe their child is next to them playing as an otter, suddenly the, the water... Um, for the otter is no longer as clear as it was, and the ability for the otter to find food is much more difficult. So that immediate, I I do something that's not great for the environment. It impacts the biodiversity and the health of the river. Um, that's that's a pretty cool thing that we're doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I remember kind of maybe I guess in the last wave of of zoo expansion when I was uh, when I was young was when they uh, they, they moved from. The, the the seals and the and the polar bears got their got their new much larger exhibit and that was sea lions, yep. that was a sorry that yeah that was a yep. huge difference in in just seeing having them feel like it, it looked like they were having fun you know it looked like they were they were able to you know have a little bit more space to play in their environment Oh
1: for sure uh, Rocky Coasts opened in 1997
0: <sighs> You're aging me uh-oh
1: <laughs> I already admitted to being a child of the 70s so uh, yeah, it opened in 1997, and it it was the year of our highest attendance, actually, uh, although we had free days back then, so it's hard to, to do an apples-to-apples apples comparison. But it was such a change for the zoo, to going from what it was essentially just the main building and a child's petting zoo and some rides... To then suddenly having this naturalistic experience where the polar bears looked as though they were really in the Arctic, and the sea lions seemed quite happy with their little sea lion beach and swimming around, and the underwater viewing—the really excellent guest experience that that offered—that uh, was that was critical for the zoo. And then the next big change was in two thousand. Eight when the elephant barn opened, and then 2012 with the step into Africa. And again, you know, larger spaces, fewer animals, but the perception of, uh, is so much better, and the opportunity to teach is, you know, unparalleled.
0: Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't make at least a little bit of time. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the Environmental Innovation Awards and Symposium because as I mentioned before, some of conscious capitalism sometimes is how do we bring more entrepreneurial thinking to nonprofits, which clearly you're doing, but also sometimes it's how do we inject a little bit more more purpose and, and really societal awareness of societal impact into into organizations. And one of my favorite quotes, uh, Plato says that uh, what, what is celebrated in a country is cultivated there. So if we're going to celebrate these these great examples of innovation and environmental sustainability, uh, hopefully we're going to cultivate more of that in Rochester. And so where did you get this idea for this Environmental Innovation Awards? And, you know, the first year was a success, but I, I'd love to hear uh, where, where it's going.
1: The idea came uh, from... You know, I I mentioned partners before. And I have really found in my time at the Zoo Society, one of the things I've I've learned in this job is that partnerships and collaborations are really key to success. And the more people that you have involved in something, uh, the more people who have a stake in it, the more likely it is to succeed and the, and the better you can get your message out. So when we did One Cubic Foot, we had an advisory committee of about 30 people who represented different organizations. And it was um, environmental organizations and arts and cultural and and... Uh, Diamond packaging and who were very are very involved in environmental sustainability, and somebody from North American breweries and somebody from Kodak, people who really had a vested interest and I began to learn about the kind of extraordinary things that were happening that many of the corporations here are already involved in, and I started meeting people who have dedicated much more of their life than I have to these causes and these initiatives and just started thinking these stories need a need A stage. They need to be told, not only to honor the people and the companies that have invested in this, but to inspire others to act as role models for the community. And I was also looking for a way for the corporate community to be a little more aware of the zoo as a conservation organization. And so at the right time, because things always do happen in their time, you know, I wanted to do it three years ago and the timing wasn't right. all things kind of aligned, and we have this wonderful trustee named Suzanne Hunt, who is an internationally renowned expert in renewable energy, and she has an extensive network uh, locally and nationally of people who are, who are really experts. And she said, I love this idea. Let's make this happen. And I've got a great idea for the first guest speaker, uh, Bill Browning, who I know you've had on the po- podcast, an expert in biophilic design uh, and biomimicry. And all of stars sort of aligned. And so we created this event and Suzanne used her, her network to help create the judging panel so that none of the judges were local uh, because as the nominations began to come in, you start going, oh, but I know that person, and I love what they're doing, and like, wait a minute, I don't have really the objective eye to be a judge for this. So we had a group of 10 or 12 judges. Um, Not all of the judges reviewed all of the nominations. They had categories that they uh, were reviewing. And one of the great things about that is that those judges then got to learn about the innovation that's happening in our community. And in fact, some of them have wanted to become investors in some of the efforts here, which is a great byproduct of this. And so we had this event at the end of October, and we were close to sold out. We oversold on the symposium portion of it. And the greatest compliment that I received, and I received it from numerous people as they were leaving, they would come up to me and say, thank you so much for this. I feel hopeful now. Thank you so much. I've lived here 30 years, and I had no idea these kinds of efforts were happening here. What can we do to get more people aware And thank you so much. How can I be involved in making this happen next year? So we are doing it again this year. We have a date reserved uh, for the second uh, Environmental Innovation Awards and Symposium. And I think we'll have an even bigger committee this year. And I thank you for serving on the committee. The biggest thing we need to do is get the word out that these awards are happening. And we need more stories. Because we told really great stories in our inaugural year, I know there are more stories out there. There's more nominations to happen, but when we issue the call for nominations, we'll we'll need help getting the word out. And uh, this, I see this event as just growing and growing from here.
0: It was really exciting. I I really especially like there's a youth category. They talked about there, there's a Harley School has a, a biomimicry club essentially, which was blowing my mind. Which was which was really neat. Uh, the small business category, I-square, uh, which Conscious Capitalism has, has visited in the past, that was that was re- represented and, and certainly well-deserved, That the, the a level of detail that they've thought through in building their facilities. And then some. there's a large business category as well. There was a
1: large business category that was so competitive we ended up giving two awards because we couldn't decide at the end of the day. The judges were completely split. And one of the awards went to Diamond Packaging, which is a packaging company here in Rochester that is completely focused. Focused on sustainable sustainability, zero waste to landfill, and you know they've got customers, vendors like Gillette and Revlon, and I don't know their exact list, but you know consumer products, and they're teaching those consumer product organizations about the importance of sustainable packaging, which is such a great effort. So they are they're not just doing it in their own business; they are teaching others about it. And then Harbeck is the other one. And Bob told, who's the founder of Harbeck, which is a, a molding injection company, uh, has been involved in renewable energy since before anybody else was. I mean, when solar or when... Uh, Wind energy first came out. He he was working on installing it, and and he'll tell you that it pays for itself. That you know, sometimes it can look like you're spending more money than you want to, but you get that back with most of these efforts. So that's been a great. And he's he's just extraordinary. He's so humble about what he does, and uh, if his employees want to. Um, put renewable energy in their homes. He helps pay. The company pays for half of it. So he really, it's ingrained in everything that they do. Such amazing stories that are happening here in our region. That one of the one of the grant criteria or the award criteria was whatever this practice is it has to be replicable or scalable so that it's not just this is what our company does and it works for us and nobody else can do it like this. It's this is a model for what other organizations here in our community or in other communities can do. And so that's why I Square One, what they're doing uh, right there in Arondequate, building this town center that teaches about sustainability uh, and encourages people to come in and do their spin spinning cycling there yeah. so that they can generate energy Um, there's no reason that other communities can't do that, that same kind of thing.
0: I, I forgot about that. I I remember that now that you mentioned it, but yeah, that, that replicability of it is really important. And, and hopefully we can build a whole library of, of best practices that, that people can share around the community and, and maybe even more broadly.
1: I, I love that idea.
0: Uh, so the, the, the last thing that I, I put you on the spot here a little bit, because we, uh, thank you for, for allowing, uh, for, for giving the time for, for Bill to come on the podcast. It's one of the, our most downloaded. Uh, but one of the quotes that I loved, I took a picture of it when he put the slide up. He had research from the U.S. Department of Labor uh, that productivity costs are 87 times larger than energy costs for private sector operating budgets. And so then his contention was that uh, improving productivity by 1% would account for the annual energy budget. So, you know, recognizing that importance of, of human capital in this in the sustainability, which I think both are are important threads, but I don't think it's very often that they get woven together like that. Where where the human capital element, improving productivity. Um, even as you were mentioning, I've heard you talk before about just like animals need to live in these more naturalistic environments. We should be in more naturalistic offices for lower stress. So
1: absolutely. That human productivity is essential. And there's been a big, um, movement towards mindfulness, but if you think about getting quiet with nature and how essential that is, um, and and all of the studies that tell us just a few minutes in nature improves our productivity, improves our ability to process information. I'm very lucky that my office is located at Seneca Park Zoo. Mm-hmm. And if I'm having a stressful moment, I can walk out and watch red pandas. And my, my heart rate immediately drops. Not everybody has that opportunity, but we pretty much all live in fairly close proximity to a green space, to open space. And getting out into it and enjoying it and making sure that you're providing your employees with an opportunity to connect with nature. And, you know, it, it, it really does make a difference. And, We've worked hard to build the culture that we have at the Zoo Society, as I said, that mission-based, but I am aware that I see a lot of my staff on their breaks walking the campus because it makes them feel good. Mm. Um, And it does, it connects them back to our mission, but I also know that what it's doing is it's helping them process, it's helping them relax and de-stress and get back to their jobs. And so that what used to be that 10 minute coffee break or the water cooler talk, if, if employers could make that somehow have a connection to nature and the environment, I think they'd see a big difference in the productivity of their employees.
0: Yeah. So maybe, maybe we can contribute uh, to that, to that best practice manual we're going to compile with some best (laughs) practices for human capital too. Great idea. All right. Well, somehow we are we are out of time. We we definitely covered a lot in terms of all the innovative programs that you're working on at the zoo other than Heading over to the zoo uh, in, in supporting the work that you're doing, I think it's hard for people to not run, in, run into you with all the different outreach programs that you have. But if folks do want to learn more, uh, whether about the zoo or about the Environmental Innovation Awards, uh, where can they find you?
1: You know, the best thing to do is go to our website, SenecaParkZoo.org, and follow us on social media. Uh, at our website, you can sign up for our e news. Uh, which we do not bombard people with. So you won't get hit with mail three times a day, email from us. Um, but you follow us on social media, follow us on Twitter, um, follow us on uh, Instagram and on Facebook. We post all of our events on Facebook and uh, yeah, that's the best thing to do.
0: Perfect. Well, uh, thank you, Pamela, so much for it's joining pleasure, us today. Andrew, and more importantly, always. for all the work that you're doing each and every day for uh, for sustainability you. and for Conscious Capitalism in Rochester. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.